Thanks, Roz. Um, let me pray for us one more time. <coughs> Father, we thank you that as we come to your word this afternoon, we trust that you speak to us. Uh, we trust that you speak to us exactly what we need to hear. And Lord, we pray today that you'd help us to listen and so respond to the person of Jesus. Amen. A few years ago, I, um, quite a few years ago now, I had a prolonged stint in a job at a tyre warehouse. Um, the job was pretty simple. At 6am, uh, a container on the back of a lorry would turn up and every hour on the dot from then on, the um, container would arrive. Our job as part of the team at Fourth Dimension was pretty simple. We had to empty the tyres out of the container in that hour window. Um, the average 40-foot container uh, carries about 1,500 tyres. Um, so you can imagine it was a pretty fraught job trying to get the tyres out of the container onto the warehouse floor and into steel cages. Basically, this is how we did it. Um, one person would go up into the back of the lorry. Uh, they'd go on a kind of conveyor boom uh, this bit like a really long treadmill and they'd rip the tyres out of the lacing which is how you stack the tyres in the back of a lorry rip it out and slam them on the conveyor belt they'd then whiz down the conveyor belt to the couple of people uh, in the rest of the team at the bottom of the conveyor belt who'd then stack the tyres into the steel cages for them to be put into the rest of the warehouse and then in times they'd go back into other vans and they'd go off across around the UK. So these lorries would come in from 50% Europe, 50% China. And um, if you did the matter very quickly, I'm guessing not many people did. 1,500 tyres in an hour, that's about 30 tyres a minute to empty the whole container in that time. So that one person who's got into the back of the lorry is absolutely gunning for it for an hour. You could only do one lorry load at a time, and then you'd have to swap, and the team would rotate, and we'd empty this container as quick as we could, and um, then the tyres would get off, we'd have a bit of a break, and then we'd go again and rotate the rolls. Now, um, this job, it was pretty intense, it was pretty full-on, but it was like no other job I've ever had before, because you clock in, you shift tyres, you clock out. It was as simple as that. It was as brilliantly simple as that. And so for me and the team, Kev, an older guy, a friend of mine, um, we really hit it off. He was a big football fan, so we talked about football. Um, it, he, for him, life and this job was pretty simple, but he gets to work each day, and he said numerous times, it felt like slavery. It was pretty oppressive, partly because this work, because it was so contained, the management in this job were always on your back. They could see the work. They were watching you. They were enforcing that you did the work. So for me and Kev and the rest of the team, there was no greater joy when a container was cancelled. Um, maybe it was held up at the docks. Maybe it got a flat tyre on the way. But when a container didn't roll up, at the warehouse door, on the hour, there was joyous scenes. And so we couldn't work. We couldn't do anything, so we'd go and play darts. It was genius. 
Kev and I and a couple of other guys playing darts when that was all that we could do. We, we couldn't do our work. Um, it was at times like that while we were playing darts, we worked out something of the stats. Probably while we were working, um, if you had a tyre fitted anywhere in the UK in that week, the chances of one of us handling it was 12%. That's how many tyres we were bringing in as a team. And so it was us against the world. We, we loved it. But it was full on. It was oppressive. It, it was hard work. I um, didn't stay there for long. I was doing other things and um, I moved job. But I kept in contact with Kev. I ended up playing football with his son. And I went to work for a church whilst studying at Theological College in a very different kind of work. And I remember one afternoon at Bordock Town Football Club, I um, spoke to Kev as he'd been watching his son, and I told him about my new job. And uh, it, was, it was very good, because he said to me, well, he, just, he was baffled, in fact. He couldn't get his head around the fact I didn't have to clock in or clock out for work anymore. He was baffled by the fact that there was no one watching what I did. Now, I'm, I am convinced, in that moment, as we stood in the, in the football club, he was thinking, I bet he's just at home playing darts all day. <laughs> that, because that's, that was his view of work. When there was no one enforcing work, that when there was no one on his back, when there was no one watching, we could just play darts when the work didn't turn up. He's probably got in mind me just playing darts. He asked me, do you have days where you just don't do anything. He just didn't get that work was different. And you see, Kev's question, you mean you don't have to check in? Couldn't you just never work? Well, it's something like the question here in verse 15. Have a look down, just read it again. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And you notice... Verse 15 is basically the same question as verse 1 that we looked at last week, but it comes in a, a new form, because the reason which brings the question is different. In verse 1, Paul, he addresses the false claim that where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more, that we might continue to sin so that grace is the best it could possibly be. Or in other words, if we sin, we maximise grace in, that is ours in Jesus. But in verse 15, the question is focused on the consideration that we're not under law, and, and so the claim that it might not apply to us anymore. The claim that the law ceases to have relevance to us, and so we might sin. The underlying assumption that Paul's addressing here in these verses is a bit like Kev's. If you don't have to work to the rules, can't you just not do any work? Or because you're not, because you're obligated, because your obligation, sorry, is not enforced, because that obligation is not enforced, couldn't you just not do it at all? Can't you just sack it off completely? If doing good things doesn't make you right before God, is there any point in doing them now? You maybe heard the language of the last couple of weeks that grace means there's no room for the Christians to say, I should do this, or I must do this to be a Christian. 
that you have presented right before God because of what Jesus has done. And it's got nothing to do with what you can achieve. And maybe that's a bit unsettling. Is that really right? Because there's a danger if you push on that logic, you push, you go down that road to the extreme, then what you're saying is, does it really matter what I do? You're not under law, so you can do what you like. The Greek word for this is antinomianism. It's a bit complicated, but it's quite simple, really. It's anti, against, like clockwise. Nomos, law. Antinomianism, against law. Do you see the challenge? Does grace mean that there is no longer any need for obedience to the law? Is grace anti-law? Is Paul saying, as a Christian, you can just do what you want? And in these verses, we see Paul's counterbalance. He wants to make it clear that not being under the law does not mean we are free to sin. And so he uses this picture, and it's a picture of work. I think work is a more appropriate, helpful, accurate parallel than slavery. And I think it's a bit like going from working at a tyre warehouse with a particular kind of boss, with a particular kind of attitude, to working at home, doing something you really want to do. Look at verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? Do you see what Paul's doing as he writes that? Paul is saying that the alternative or the opposite to being slaves to sin is not being lawless. It's being obedient to something else. Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. You are slaves to the one you obey. Paul's saying that when you become a Christian, you're no longer obligated to sin, but you are obligated to obey God, which leads to righteousness. Hang on a minute. Isn't that a bit of a U-turn from Paul? Doesn't this go back on grace? Here's the big question. What does it mean what does it look like? What does it feel like in our experience to be obligated to obey God? What does it feel like in, ex- in our experience? Have a look at verse 17. But thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Here's a rich verse as Paul pulls together. He layers up truth after truth in this verse. Just walk through it together. Thanks be to God. Paul sets up this verse with this foundational truth. Thanks be to God because he is responsible. He is at work. It's his work. In this verse the most significant change for the believer is described. 
But do you see, it's almost presented in the most passive way. Have a look. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, although this is what you used to be like, you were once enslaved by sin. There was nothing you could do about your situation. You might not have even realised it, but you were going back to sin again and again. Though you used to be slaves to sin, look down, you have come to obey from your heart. A radical change has taken place. It's different. Something in you has changed if you trust in Jesus. It's not just recognising what is right. It's not just duty, but it's desire. You've been changed to both be able to do what is right and want to do it. You have come to obey from your heart. What have you come to obey? You have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching. That is, the truth of God's word. What he has always communicated to his people. This is God's promise from Jeremiah. This is what it says. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you see God's promise there? I will write my law on their hearts. Do you see what Paul is saying? The law is on your heart if you trust in Jesus. When you trust in Jesus, your very affections are changed to want to do what is right. So that the pattern of sound teaching, the same thing that Paul writes to encourage Timothy in, to cling to God's word recorded in the pages of the Bible, that is what you will want to do. How is it that you have come to obey this teaching if you trust in Jesus? How is it that that change has taken place? Have a look at this. At the end of the verse, this is brilliant. I think this is my favourite part of the whole passage. The pattern of teaching that has claimed your allegiance. The pattern of teaching that has claimed your allegiance. Something has changed in you. Something's got you. Something's gripped you if you trust in Jesus. In his origin story, Spider-Man gets his superhuman spider powers and abilities after being bitten by a radioactive spider. These include superhuman strength, speed, agility, jump reflexes, stamina, durability, coordination and balance, clinging to surfaces and ceilings like a spider, and detecting danger with his precognition ability called spider sense. See, Peter Parker was completely passive in his change to become Spider-Man. Peter Parker was completely passive in his change of allegiance to be part of this superhero crew. If you remember the film scenes, you know where he's just got his powers? And Peter Parker, I mean, he's portrayed as being pretty pathetic, isn't he? Because he's just found out he can do something he's got no idea how it's working. Something's changed in him. Something's changed him. He's able to do and see things he couldn't do before. And you see what Paul says? When you become a Christian, something has claimed your allegiance. 
It's not first you working really hard to obey God's law. No. God's law, the pattern of teaching, has gripped you. James 1 verse 18 says, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. See, if we follow Jesus, the word of truth has claimed your allegiance such that you have new life. Everything that God reveals to us about us and him is now gripped you. Look at verse 18, it summarises what's happened. God's work in the life of the believer. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You see, just picture the scene, me and Kev. Kev from the tyre factory at the bar at Baldock Town Football Club. He couldn't get his head round it. Because I'd been set free from the clasp of the tyre factory. I was no longer obligated to the constant clocking in and clocking out. I was no longer enslaved, in his words, to the overpowering management, watching what we were doing. I didn't have to join the queue to clock in. I didn't have to apply for a day off. I didn't have to do enforced overtime at the tyre factory. I didn't face the scrutiny of the shift leaders or face disciplinary action. But you see, that freedom, it led to something different. I didn't just play darts all day. Of course I didn't. I became radically committed to something I desperately wanted to do. Because I had a new obligation. It looked totally different. But it was an obligation. See, if you come to trust in Jesus, you have a new heart that is set on God's law. You are a slave to righteousness. You must be obedient to the pattern of teaching that has claimed your, obedience, uh, uh, your allegiance. It's not that you have to do it in order to be a Christian. But if you are a Christian, something has changed. And so there must be obedience. It's worth saying that when you trust in Jesus, your heart is changed, but something of your old sinful nature remains. Paul calls it the flesh, as he writes about it elsewhere. The temptation, the old desires to dishonour God, they, they stick around. But the power of sin has been defeated. Look at verse 18. You have been set free from sin. So it might be hard. It might take time. It might be painful. But Christians are being transformed. See what Paul describes in this change in the most passive way. If you trust in Jesus, you have been changed to want to honour God. If you trust in Jesus, you have been changed to be able to honour God. And you have been changed to be obligated to honour God. But that's not a passive thing in our experience. Just think of this week. That's not passive. If you trust in Jesus, you'll know what that feels like day by day. Think of some sin that you're very aware of in your own life. Pride. Lust. Anger, envy, greed, 
gossip. When you trust in Jesus and you realise that something doesn't honour God, you will want to change because you have been changed. Sometimes that will be complex. Sometimes there will be baggage. But fundamentally, you'll want to change. Then as you desire that change, you quickly realise that you are able to fight sin because of the change that has happened in you. But the reality is that when sin runs deep in your old nature, naturally it's an active, involved process. It's a battle. The change has come about in us only thanks to God. But it's an involved process in which we use all the tools that we have been given by the Holy Spirit to battle sin. In time, if we trust in Jesus, there will be change. There must. Because we have been set free from sin and we have become slaves of righteousness. And look, maybe Sandering this afternoon, for us, that feels like a real relief. There must be change. Maybe that feels like a real relief. But maybe that feels slightly unsettling. There must be change. Well, maybe in the face of sin, you could ask these questions. Am I more convinced of the pattern of sound teaching in this area than I once was? Do I want to do the good things God tells us in his word more than I once did? Do I want to avoid the wrong things God tells us in his word more than I once did? Do I recognise in me the ability to fight sin and honour God by his spirit more than I once did? Am I more willing to take practical steps to address sin? Am I more willing more than I once was? And if you go through those questions, you work through those questions. They take working through. And you can answer yes to each one of those. And you're still thinking, am I seeing change? I want to see change. Then these verses are a real encouragement. Look at verse 17 again. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. See, if you trust in Jesus... Thanks be to God that you are being transformed to be more and more like him. You are. And you're now obligated to righteousness. So there will be change. And verse 19, you will become more holy in your obligation to righteousness. That will come. We can give thanks to God that our allegiance has changed if we trust in Jesus. We have the power within us and we will see real change as we trust in Jesus. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this picture, this shift of obligation. Lord, we thank you so much that only thanks to you, when we come to trust in Jesus, we are no longer obligated to sin. But we are obligated to righteousness, which leads to holiness. Lord, please would you help us to continue clinging on to the Lord Jesus at work in us to transform us to be more and more like him. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing of this change that is at work in us if we trust in Jesus. So the desire to honour him. So let's stand and sing.